0: What are pharmacy benefit managers and why are they the target of the biggest debate in pharmacy today? Find out next in this edition of Lockdown Pharmacy. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
1: You are listening to the Locked On Pharmacy podcast, the insider's view into the world of pharmacy.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Frank Fortin from the American Pharmacists Association. Pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, have been part of healthcare for decades. But for years, states have been trying to regulate their business practices, arguing that PBMs are harming patient care. Pharmacy owners, especially in the independents, also say PBMs are a big reason why they're struggling just to keep their doors open. The debate has even made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. With me today is Antonio Chacha, newly appointed as Senior Advisor for Disruptive Innovation and Practice Transformation for APHA. His past work on PBMs has been instrumental in pulling back the curtain on what PBMs do, and has inspired reforms at the state level. He's here to talk about what he's learned and what can be done about it. Welcome, Antonio.
1: Great great to be here, Frank.
0: And welcome to APHA.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here and excited.
0: Great. So let's start with the basics about this. Why were PBMs invented and where did they go wrong?
1: So in the old days, uh, insurance companies uh, had uh, a lesser role in the, in, the payer, in the payment of healthcare in general. Uh, over time, uh, insurers became uh, more and more looked to uh, for overall healthcare coverage. And then eventually along the way, uh, along with coverage of healthcare came the coverage for prescription drugs. So in the olden days uh, where drugs or prescription drugs were primarily acquired through cash transactions, um, as patients and, and, uh, and employer groups were more and more interested in making sure that there was some sort of predictable coverage, especially as more and more expensive drugs came to market, developing an insurer-like model for prescription drugs became more and more of a necessity and a demand from the public. Um, as the transaction got more expensive, uh, insurers looked towards uh, an entity to help processing the claim and also to actually start influencing the claim. So PBMs were naturally born out of a uh, really what I would consider to be a technological need at first really the equivalent of a a Visa or a MasterCard for drug coverage. Um, But eventually as they inserted their way into the middle of the transaction and more and more patients and payers expected more and more coverage of drugs, the power of PBMs started growing significantly over time to where eventually they made their way in between about 90% of all the transactions that occur at the pharmacy counter.
0: And about what point in time did this occur?
1: So really, PBMs started in the 60s and 70s uh, to actually kind of bust onto the scene. But it really wasn't until uh, the 90s and and, and Medicare Part D, really, where PBMs really became uh, a central component uh, of of the prescription drug supply chain.
0: And so what happened? Where did they go wrong? Where did they suddenly, be, um, eventually, not suddenly, but where did they eventually become uh, seen as part of the problem and not really part of the solution?
1: Well, really, PBMs were always designed to be a headache on, on the pharmacy side of the supply chain. So if you think about it, at a very simplistic level, drug manufacturers would like for nothing more than to charge whatever they could get away with. They sell drugs to wholesalers who would love to charge however much they can, uh, how much they could possibly get away with. And really, pharmacies uh, would be in the same boat. Where really, pharmacies would like for nothing more to be able to charge whatever they can get away with. Again, I'm talking about incentives here. Um, So you really needed a friction point on the other end of the supply chain to say, okay, we're not going to let you charge whatever you want. So PBMs were were brought in to act as that friction point to find an equilibrium point to say. What is a fair price to pay for these drugs? Well, that's always going to act be some sort of headache for manufacturers, wholesalers, and pharmacies, and arguably, rightfully so. But over time, that headache has turned into um, a, a migraine because PBMs have been consolidating significantly to the point where three PBMs make up, give or take, about 80% of the, uh, of the overall marketplace. So with that excess leverage means that they can really aggressively start pressing the other side of the supply chain. Manufacturers are complaining about PBMs, you know, shaking them down for rebates that are too large. Uh, and pharmacies obviously are complaining that, that over consolidation has put them in a position where take it or leave it contracts are now adversely impacting the sustainability uh, and the standard of care that's being offered at pharmacies. So that's, that's where I would really start categorizing it as a problem is that the side of the supply chain set with you know setting the reimbursements uh, has gotten to the point where the pharmacies are at a point where they can't effectively manage their practices given the state of affairs and the overconsolidation consolidation of the other side of the, of the reimbursement uh, equation.
0: And eventually the complaint became that we're not getting reimbursed for our costs. And therefore, how can we stay in business?
1: Uh, that's correct, but it, I, I, I'd quibble with it a little bit. Not everything that pharmacies do occur at a loss. It's just that you're seeing a gradual attrition over time. Many prescriptions that pharmacies fill now do occur at a loss. Um, a segment of the prescriptions occur at a probably about a break-even rate, and there's a small segment of prescriptions that actually wildly overpay. A lot of our work. Uh, Uh, historically has been trying to actually sort all that out and figure out, you know, why are PBMs underpaying for some, overpaying for others? Um, The drugs that are overpaying, where are those prescriptions going? Um, You know, a lot of our research has shown, and this is back to, I think, what has really become uh, a massive problem in pharmacy is that while PBMs were meant to control the pharmacy side of the transaction and act as that friction point or a check on the other side of the supply chain, over time, PBMs not only were horizontally integrating, they were also vertically vertically integrating. So many of the largest PBMs, or the largest PBMs all own their own specialty pharmacies, mail order pharmacies. In the case of, uh, of, of one, they own their own retail pharmacies as well. So it begs the question, if the PBM is ultimately tasked with controlling costs at the pharmacy level, what incentive do they have to control costs if they actually own pharmacies as well. And furthermore, what types of conflicts of interest do PBMs have when setting reimbursements in a marketplace that they now have affiliated companies? A lot of our research has shown that those conflicts of interest are being exploited.
0: So what, what impact does this have on patients and uh, the people who um, use pharmacies, say independent pharmacies or even chain pharmacies?
1: it has a number of impacts. You know, uh, PBM management of drug formularies, uh, they basically get rebates from drug manufacturers to entice them to cover certain drugs. Um, We do see a lot of patients that are seeing less and less coverage for prescription medications. But at the pharmacy level, the attrition of margin and the unsustainability or the growing unsustainability of pharmacy is resulting in pharmacy closures. Um, we are seeing a lot of pharmacies, specifically uh, retreating from high Medicaid areas where reimbursements tend to be the most challenging. Um, we are seeing uh, less independent pharmacies in many states um, and we are seeing chain pharmacies retreat uh, from, from communities as well. Outside of the loss of accessibility uh, is also the, 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 the hidden part that we're losing, which is a standard of care in pharmacy. So if you're a pharmacist and you're practicing an independent pharmacy, uh, you get to see the numbers right in front of you, and you know the problems uh, firsthand. But if you're a chain pharmacist, uh, you know you're a little bit more detached from the economics of the tra- uh, the transaction, or at least seemingly so. But if you are having to operate your uh, your pharmacy with less tech help, less pharmacy overlap, um, that is the manifestation of the poor economic model that PBMs have imposed upon the industry. Um, So there's a number of ways with which PBMs and the practices that they've uh, been engaging in are compromising a number of things uh, at the pharmacy level, all of which trickle down to the patient.
0: Are there implications for patient safety?
1: Absolutely. Uh, So anybody that's read the Ellen Gabler uh, investigative feature in the New York Times from earlier this year uh, knows all too well that, um, that, yes, this is compromising patient safety. Pharmacists are reporting that they are under the gun, uh, having to work uh, harder with less resources, and it's ultimately resulting in errors. But errors aren't the only thing that, uh, that ultimately is a gauge for the degree of patient safety that's occurring in pharmacies. Pharmacists have a professional obligation uh, to uh, do drug utilization review, counsel patients, ensure that, uh, that drug therapy is appropriate. Uh, Right now, the business model of pharmacy is compressing the time and bandwidth necessary to do those sorts of things. We would be foolish if we were to assume that pharmacists are able to do the same high level of care with five minutes per prescription versus 30 seconds per prescription. Just like this podcast would be incredibly ineffective if we had to concise it down into a 30 second segment, Um, the quality uh, and many things would be lost we would technically still have completed the podcast, just like pharmacists would technically have completed filling the prescription, but we would be foolish to assume that the standard with which it was done uh, was the same.
0: Antonio, you've done some work um, fairly recently in the state of Ohio with uh, the uh, activities and the practices of PBMs. What did you find there when you were doing work on behalf of the Ohio Pharmacists Association?
1: Yeah, so we had pharmacists uh, calling me in in the summer of 2016 bemoaning a massive cut in reimbursements. It was a a reported 60 to 80% cut in their gross margins in the Medicaid managed care sector. Now, complaints about reimbursement are nothing new, but to that degree, we had never seen before. And so when pharmacists came to me with that information, I turned around and went to state officials and said, hey, did, did did you cut rates? Um, they said, no, we didn't do any policy changes. In fact, we're paying more than we ever have for prescription drug coverage. Uh, so if pharmacists saw a massive cut and the state was paying more than ever, you know, we had a stinking suspicion that PBMs were manipulating something in the middle of the transaction. We began pulling data off the CMS website showing what state Medicaid programs were being charged on a quarterly basis for individual transactions in the Medicaid programs. And we compared that to CMS data showing the cost of those drugs. In between, we saw this growing delta between what the rates that were being charged versus the cost of the drug. Knowing that pharmacies were getting paid less, that crumb trail uh, we brought to the the reporters at the Columbus Dispatch and uh, state officials, uh, not only in the governor's office and legislature, but also our state attorney general's office. Um, The crumb trail that we created built the exigency for an audit that audit found that there was a growing gap in the middle of the transaction. and In fact, it amounted to $244 million in just one year, where PBMs were paying pharmacies very low, and they were billing the state very high and capturing the difference. That set off a tidal wave of controversy, um, a two and a half year investigation in the Columbus Dispatch, um, and a number of other states starting to look under the hood of their prescription drug automobile.
0: And so what did Ohio do?
1: Ohio ultimately decided to uh, fire its PBMs and completely uh, revamp the system. Uh, so we're actually in the middle of, of that reform effort in the state of Ohio, where they have pulled the plug and said, we're not gonna allow PBMs um, in an un, in, a, in, a undita- or in a detached fashion, set arbitrarily set prices in the pharmacy marketplace. Uh, the state prohibited the practice of spread pricing and move to fully transparent pass-through contracting. They took the next step in uh, resetting the table on the Medicaid managed care program. So Medicaid managed care uh, organizations or insurers uh, ultimately are the ones that uh, carry out Medicaid benefits in, in states across the country. Those insurance companies hire PBMs to go out and pay for pharmacy benefits. The state of Ohio said, we're not going to allow that system anymore. So the state is actually creating its own PBM that contracts directly with the state where they'll be setting prices based on objective pricing benchmarks rather than the whims of the PBM. Meanwhile, the state said to all the insurance companies that were overseeing that process that they were very dissatisfied with how they were managing that process. And so they also hit the reset button on the managed care plans, essentially firing all of them and telling them they had to reapply for their ability to uh, cover Medicaid uh, benefits in our state.
0: So Ohio's experience is really interesting. Is this, uh, is this a one-off or is this kind of thing happening in other states too?
1: So it's it really, I mean, it's, uh, we're at this massive turning point for reform. The state of California has moved to carve out pharmacy benefits altogether and pay pharmacies directly. The state of New York recently uh, passed legislation and signed that they're moving to carve benefits out as well. Uh, just recently here, um, this month, the state of Michigan, uh, Our, our, my data analytics company did um, uh, a project where we looked at pricing problems in the state of Michigan. And just this week, Governor Whitmer in the state of Michigan announced that they were going to no longer allow PBMs to set prices in the Medicaid managed care program and decided to start paying pharmacies based on their acquisition costs, plus a $10.63 dispensing fee, which is a massive improvement to where it was, where PBMs were exploiting spread pricing in the state of Michigan. So uh, we're seeing a growing uh, revolution against PBMs and state Medicaid programs. The question is, will Medicare Part D with DIR fees, where it's essentially a back-ended spread pricing transaction, in the commercial sector, where employers are paying more for prescription drugs than ever, will they be the next ones to take the cue? Uh, our data analytics mission is to sterilize the transaction and hopefully bring the reforms that we brought to Medicaid programs elsewhere.
0: What do you mean by sterilize?
1: So really, what you have is a you have a problem, and you you have a, you have an infection that's living in the in the middle of the prescription drug supply chain. Um, sterilizing it means eliminating it. Uh, PBMs thrive off of dysfunction, and we believe that data and transparency with data um, acts as a great disinfectant for that infection.
0: And how does the Supreme Court case figure that, figure into this, if at all?
1: So a lot of states have tried to pass legislation to rein in PBM pricing abuses, uh, but when, even when they do pass those laws, let's just pretend they're effective, which by the way, many of them are not because PBMs have a number of ways to work their way around state laws. Uh, those laws that pass, even if they do, if they are impactful, only impact a certain segment of the marketplace. ERISA ultimately shields PBMs from any type of regulatory reform that could impact self-funded plans. So the Supreme Court case is centered on whether or not states can regulate a certain segment of the commercial uh, activity within its own borders. So right now, PBMs have been invincible from from any type of regulation, regardless of whether it's beneficial to pharmacy or not. And what the case is centered on is whether or not states have their own authority and right to regulate PBM activities within their state borders. So really, if states want to get things under control, all of that is sitting right now in the Supreme Court, whether or not that's going to be possible.
0: And even though the case is technically just about the state of Arkansas, almost every other state has tried to do something along this line.
1: This this case has national implications. Uh, it's very important for pharmacy. Arguably, it's even more important for states and the commercial employers that are paying for pharmacy benefits Right now, as we've highlighted, in a highly dysfunctional system.
0: You've said elsewhere, Antonio, that pharmacy is in crisis as a as as an industry. If we fix PBMs in in many of the ways you're talking about here, does that solve most of the problem, or is there other work to do?
1: There's a lot more work to do right now. You know, pharmacies basically, at a at a very general level, uh, think that they're getting um, underpaid for prescriptions, and it's compromising their ability to sustain their practices and the standard of care that we expect from them. Well, let's just say there's a magic wand and it fixes the monetary side of it. And all of a sudden the revenues necessary to provide dispensing services are there. It doesn't change the fact that pharmacy companies have gotten used to uh, operating with bare bone staffing. And so what pharmacy suffers from is it is essentially a lack of recognition for the service of the, uh, the pharmacist. The the, the the clinical service and the value that pharmacists provide is not quantified in any meaningful way and it is not reimbursed for. And so whether you're, an indep- well, you're working in an independent pharmacy or a chain pharmacy, if, all you're do- if, if the only thing that you have is a revenue stream for the dispensing of prescriptions and we don't evaluate the quality with which you render that service, or we do not have any sort of rec- uh, recognition for, the services that you're providing to a patient that go beyond dispensing, well, then the incentives in pharmacy are to grind reimbursements to the bone uh, or take good reimbursements and don't invest them into the service of the patient care. So let me say this a little bit more plainly. If a pharmacy chain today is operating with $2 in margin per prescription, and all of a sudden we infuse $8 more into that prescription, do and does anybody think that pharmacy chains will staff up with every dime that was reinvested into that, into that pharmacy? The answer is absolutely not. And that's because they don't have to. Pharmacies just got away with operating on a $2 margin. And being that many of these companies are beholden to shareholders, we would be foolish to assume that those things would get reinvested back into the care of the patient. Pharmacists suffer from very poor incentives that expect very little of them. What we need to do is actually change the way that we pay for pharmacy. Rather than just saying, look, we're going to pay you a set amount over the cost to fill a prescription, maybe we need to start actually tying the outcomes of the patient to the payment model. Because without knowing this um, from a research standpoint, I can say very clearly that a pharmacist that spends more time with a patient, more time with the physician that's guiding that patient's drug therapy, uh, they'll ultimately have a better impact on that patient's well-being but we don't quantify that, we don't reimburse for that. Uh, Until we get to a a system that pays a pharmacist for its expertise and the pharmacist's ability to make a patient better, we really can't expect the pharmacy profession as a whole to ever uh, recognize and protect the value of the pharmacist because we've never actually incented what that pharmacist is doing. So payment reform is the number one priority, I think, nationally that moving incentives in pharmacy into the service that the uh, the pharmacist is rendering, beyond whether or not they fill the prescription fast or slow, that's the most important thing that we can do, because ultimately it makes sure that pharmacies are staffed accordingly to make that patient better.
0: So medicine has gone down this road for a while now, 15 years or so, Um, and certainly since the passage of the Affordable Care Act 10 years ago or so. And the beginnings of it, at least, were really bloody. Uh, doctors are howling. These incentives are wrong. You're measuring the wrong thing. You're incentivizing me to do the to do the things that I know aren't making a difference. How does pharmacy not fall into that same trap?
1: That's a that's a great question. And, and so right now, one of the arguments that PBMs uh, say is, well, we are paying for value. That's that's what DIR fees are for. Uh, so the metrics there there are being new metrics being placed on pharmacies, but they're being set by their competitors. <laughs> They're being set by mail order companies um, who obviously don't have the same incentives to make the patient better. So right now, yes, there are metrics in pharmacy, but those metrics are being exploited much to the the same degree that spread pricing was being uh, exploited in state Medicaid programs. So bringing metrics into pharmacy is always going to be somewhat of a headache. Um, And it's also going to be dangerous because while you can say we want quality, actually defining what quality is is a is, is a whole different ball game
0: it's exactly um, what medicine ran into
1: e- exactly correct so just simply saying we're moving to quality based or value-based reimbursements is not a panacea in and of itself uh, pharmacy has to be engaged in actually helping set those metrics in conjunction with physician partners and health plan partners to make sure that we're ultimately achieving something that's a value otherwise if we just let the metric setting if we just leave it to the PBMs who've been exploiting this system in the first place, we're really no farther ahead than we were in the first place. Uh, So advocacy, we typically think of as passing bills uh, and getting them signed into law. Advocacy takes many other shapes and forms. From a pharmacy perspective, and this is where I think APHA, uh, it it really is important, And, and really all the national pharmacy organizations, if we're gonna be developing what quality looks like in pharmacy and ultimately developing incentives and payment models around what we view as quality, um, pharmacy organizations need to be the one at the table influencing that rather than letting PBMs just set it on their own. Um, and and hopefully what, I, what I'm hoping with APHA and, and my involvement with APHA is we can act as the hatchet to break all of this open, but then we also need to p- position the organization and key pharmacy uh, and pharmacist stakeholders to actually help build up a better model than the one that's here today.
0: So Antonio, this is fascinating. Um, What I'm thinking of right now is the uh, five-year pharmacist behind a counter at Rite Aid or Walgreens or CVS. And they're saying, yeah, this all sounds good, but right now I'm in existential angst. And I'm not, you know, my working conditions are terrible. Um, I don't feel fulfilled. How does this matter to uh, folks um, in, the, in that state of mind and that, those working conditions?
1: Everybody should have an inherent distrust of every layer of the drug supply chain, uh, including pharmacies. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but rather than trust companies, let's trust incentives. Um, the incentives in pharmacy right now uh, are built in a way that don't penalize pharmacies uh, for understaffing. And putting their pharmacists in a position to fail—that's uh, a problem. Conversely, we don't have a system in pharmacy that rewards pharmacies that increase staffing and make patients better. Uh, if you're sitting there in a pharmacy that looks more like a that feels more like a McDonald's than a healthcare facility, um, that's a result of bad incentives, uh, and it's it's a result of a lack of accountability. Longitudinally, changing the incentives in pharmacy in pivoting them to the outcome of the patient will help pharmacists because patients are better served by healthcare providers that have the time, bandwidth and resources to make them better. Uh, But let's not kid ourselves, as you say, that's not happening tomorrow. And it's probably not gonna happen next year either. Um, So what do we do today? Uh, The truth is, is that things like what Ellen Gabler did uh, in the New York Times article is really the first step just like we did with PBM dysfunction and PBM's exploiting the state Medicaid program in Ohio, you have to expose the problem first. Um, so I think where APHA, state associations and the individual pharmacists can, uh, can do is do a better job highlighting what they feel are unsafe or, or ineffective working conditions that put patients at risk. Um, working with state boards of pharmacy is, is one step. Working with CMS to change payment, uh, payment models is another. Working directly with health plans is another. Uh, creating a system, a, a pharmacy reimbursement system that's sustainable enough for a pharmacist to say, you know what, I'm not gonna work in these conditions anymore. I'm going to join another practice. That's another way to do it. It's ultimately going to be very imperfect, but uh, a lot of the conversations we're having at APHA right now is okay, yeah, we need to do this payment reform but in the interim, what do we do now? Um, the truth is the answer isn't necessarily readily available, but our, my most recent conversations with APHA board members and and senior leadership is, well, what do we do now? Um, that's gonna be a work in progress, but it's one that's gonna be a very soon and right now work in progress.
0: And not to be the uh, the uh, um, Debbie Donner at the party, but you know when I worked with medical associations, the problems with the uh, the former Medicare reimbursement formula were identified in 1996 and 97. Almost immediately after the formula was created, it took 20 years to fix it, and it was AMA's uh, number one priority for 20 years, and it wasn't for lack of trying. So um, I wouldn't it wouldn't be en- entirely surprising that it would take. Hopefully not 20 years, but years to get this going because it's really going at the real uh, foundation of of this entire uh, system, isn't it?
1: Well, and and at the risk of this sounding like the sales pitch, I mean, this is this is where I go nuts because doctors and nurses and dentists, you know, they have really been able to help reshape their practice models, and when they want something, they typically get it the join rates at those organizations historically are better than what we see in pharmacy. And that's not just from APHA's perspective, that's globally. State associations, NCPA, ASHP, whatever whatever alphabet soup organization you want to talk about, pharmacists have been largely disengaged. Uh, And understandably, some of them feel disconnected from a lot of the reform efforts that many organizations are undertaking. But as I said before, the payment reform push is probably the most important thing and if you're a, a pharmacist sitting there on the counter right now, you're saying, Well, what does that mean to me? Right. Well, know that this is what this is why that payment reform is so important, is because these are the actual fundamental changes that are necessary to fix your practice model. Uh, so my, my call out to pharmacists is that you need to support these organizations that are working on payment reform because we're not going to pass the magic bill that creates the perfect ratio. That actually helps you change uh, the change, you know, your working environment. Uh, I don't see a state, a board of pharmacy stepping up and waving the magic wand to fix workforce issues tomorrow. Um, so it ultimately involve, it involves an investment in the organizations necessary that bring about change. Uh, AMA, as powerful and strong as they are, to your point, Frank, took twenty years to get there. Um, do you think pharmacy is gonna be able to get there with one arm tied behind his back? Absolutely not. Um, so it does take a concerted effort from pharmacists to say, you know, we're not gonna take this anymore and we're gonna support the organizations that are working to change it.
0: Antonio Chacha, thank you for joining us today. And that's it for this edition of Locked Pharmacy. I'm Frank Fortin for the American Pharmacists Association. Thank you for listening.
1: This podcast has been brought to you by the American Pharmacists Association the largest professional association of pharmacists in the United States.